chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone and bread alone. Then the devil led him up, a high, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's go before our God in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On September 10th, 2017, this church kicked off and we opened up our doors as we began ministry full-time. That same day, the NFL kicked off its season and opened up a debate, a debate that took place because players kneeled during our national anthem. And the feedback, the outrage, the, the explanations poured in from all over the place. Everyone weighed in. Everyone from the players to the fans to the players of other sports and fans of other sports. CNN, ABC, ESPN, MSNBC, Fox, the president, those serving in our military, veterans, activists of other kinds, you and I, everyone weighed in. But to what end? Was there a conversation that got furthered? Was there, was there any action that, that took place? Well, who knows? But what we do know is that America's most popular sport well, all of a sudden became host to perhaps America's most polarizing scandal. A real scandal. It was just a month later that the New York Times and the New Yorker uh, published a set of stories, explosive stories, that, well, made allegations that now defamed Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, well, he committed acts of sexual harassment. And ever since then, it seems like it's almost been daily that a different prominent man from Hollywood or the political scene or media or sports is accused of sexual harassment. Time Magazine took note of this and, and called the brave men and women who, who spoke out against this the silence breakers and named them people of the year because of their courage because of what they did well movements have started the me too movement and times up movement and well a very serious scandal has been brought to light uh, an old country in november just a month after that uh, an old scandal 
took center stage once again as the White House released all the documents about President John F. Kennedy's assassination. Well, not all of them, actually. Of the 3,100 available, 200 were kept back. And President Trump said this was to protect our, our national security. But now, you know, conspiracy theorists have a same scandal in just a new light. And speaking of the White House and scandals, well, maybe now is not the time or place, but su suffice it to say that there seems to be an aura or a lingering aura of scandals over not just one of our nation's leaders. Scandals. They are all around. Whether you are watching the Olympics, whether you are reading about the steel industry, or whether you are reading about education or healthcare, whether you're talking about pro sports or college sports, religious or finances, there seems to be a scandal everywhere we look. And people love scandalous stories, and not in the sense that they, they love them. Do they make us mad? Well, maybe. Annoyed? Perhaps. But people keep reading the scandals. It's why when Confidential Magazine came out in the 50s, it gave birth to a new genre of gossip journalism. It's why the National Enquirer, yeah, it stays stocked on store shelves. It's why media outlets like BuzzFeed and TMZ are are the news outlets that get forced to the forefront of so many people's social media feeds. Scandals. And just to be clear, scandals are not just bad or sad things. No, scandals are bad. They're sad. And, and those things happen all the time. But scandals are the bad things that are also unexpected things. They're the things that shock people. They're the things that should not be. Scandals are are, well, Matt Lauer, someone who we thought was a squeaky clean family man, the man we trusted to sit in our living rooms and, and bring us the news, not being that. Scandals surprise us. They shock us because they shouldn't be what we're seeing. And over the next six weeks, well, we are going to witness perhaps the greatest scandal that comes all time. Over the next six weeks, we are going to see a scandal that comes complete with a, a crowd, corruption, a crowd that doesn't know if it should cry or cheer, cowardly decisions, lies, witnesses that are paid off, and ultimately, an innocent man put to death. We're starting a sermon series today called Scandal, and today we're going to start looking at the plot that kicked this scandal off. And, and our lesson for today, our series lesson for today, comes from Matthew chapter 26, where we read, When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. I know you know this story, but imagine if you had never heard it before and you're reading it for the very first time. The chief priests the elders 
of the people. The high priests are plotting to kill an innocent man. Let me just reframe it for you. It would be like if I, your, your, your pastor, your priest, along with the leaders of our congregation, the elders, got together with the pastor and the elders of Trinity and Bethlehem and Manassas, and together we plotted with our district president that we are going to kill, let's see, well, an innocent member that we just don't like. It would be shocking if you found that out. You'd be outraged, right? And that's what's happening here. The, the, the chief priests, the people who are supposed to teach God's people God's word, well, including things like the commandments, like the fifth commandment that talks about murder. Yeah, those guys. And the high priest, whose job was to once a year, him and him alone, go behind the temple curtain and, and there sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant as a way to, to symbolize the coming atonement that the Messiah would bring, that God's son would bring, these people were plotting now to kill the son of God. Oh, it's cold. It's, it's calculated. It's callous. It's, it's a plot. It's a premeditated and it planned out plot to kill. To kill an innocent man. And it's it's rather easy. It's easy for us to kind of just take a comfortable, cursory cruise through Lent. To, to view the Jesus story, if you will, from 40,000 feet above. But this, this Lent, I'm going to challenge you and me to pause and, and zoom in a little bit. To zoom all the way in at this story, at, at, this, at this plot that moves the Messiah up a mount called Calvary. Because what you see is that, well, it's not only the scandalous plot of the religious leaders that led Jesus to where he is, but it's the scandalous sins of you and I. And you say, well, Pastor, I've never plotted like that. I'm not, I'm not that cold and callous towards God's word. But think about it. Think about all of the times that you had planned to do something that you know full well is not pleasing to God but you do it anyways. That's a plot to sin. But that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to conquer. That's why Jesus showed up. Our gospel lesson for today that the rest of our sermon is going to talk about takes place immediately after Jesus was baptized. Immediately after Jesus received power from the Holy Spirit. Immediately after Jesus received the encouragement from his father to go and die for all man's sins. Immediately he's led out into the wilderness. Where there he prays. He prays to his God and he prepares for the battle that he's going to fight for the souls of mankind. And he fasts. And he, and he spends time with his God. But it's here, well the snake comes with a sneak attack. And it's here that we see the prince of light face off with the prince of darkness. And the fate of mankind hangs in the balance. We read it earlier. Jesus was tempted three times by Satan. Three times that are recorded in scripture. But wh what do you make of these temptations? I mean, Bible students all over the place are, are studying these and looking at these today as we begin Lent. And they're wondering, why did Jesus 
be tempted by the devil? Why was he tempted with these specific temptations? And if Jesus was going to go and suffer for everyone's sins, why did he need to suffer here in the wilderness? Well, this morning we're going to break down these three temptations. We're going to look at them and, and see what was being tempted as we see how we can also stand up to the devil's temptations. The first temptation uh, came when uh, Satan came to Jesus, launched a perfectly aimed attack and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, the devil is not testing God's divine sonship. Jesus knew who he was. And Satan knew who Jesus was. And Jesus knew that Satan knew who he was. So what's the temptation here? Well, think about what Jesus had been doing for 40 days. Not eating. And Satan came to him and said, Hey, here's some bread. Just eat it. Oh, oh, God loves you, right? You think that God cares for you. Why then did he lead you out in this God-forsaken wilderness and starve you? What the devil's doing is tempting Jesus to doubt that God was hearing his prayers, that God really loved him, that God really cared for him. And so he said, why don't you take matters into your own hand? Why don't you just turn this stone into bread? And we're going to call this, this temptation the best thing since sliced bread temptation. Because it's the same temptation that we face whenever we're faced with a moment where we think God doesn't care for us or God doesn't hear us. It's where we go looking for the next best thing, the best thing since sliced bread. Maybe, maybe it's a material thing to bring me comfort, to bring me joy, to bring me security. When it's only the good provision of our, of our good God that can truly provide what we need. Or maybe it's people. We go to people, imperfect people, for them to fulfill us, to make us happy, to bring us joy. But when they, well, don't do that, what do we do? On to the next one. When they disappoint us, we move on to the next best thing because, hey, maybe that can bring me meaning, uh, approval, security in life. And what are we doing? We're doubting that we have a God, that we have a Father, we have the Heavenly Father who's going to work all things out for the good of those who love them. And more than just good, he is the one working and has worked all things out for the eternal glory of his people. He's the one who hears your prayer to give us this day our daily bread. We doubt. And so Jesus Jesus replied to Satan. He said, man doesn't live on bread alone. Man doesn't live on food. He doesn't live on material things. He doesn't live based on imperfect people. He doesn't live on anything except on the word of God that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is what our Jesus says. When Satan serves up a temptation, oh, Jesus spikes it in his face and says, Satan, you lie. But he keeps going. Satan says, all right, all right, so you're going to live by the word of God. All right, well, how about this? Will you die by the word of God? I mean, listen, Jesus, the word of God mandates that you go and die and suffer a cruel and agonizing death for people, people who are going to be unthankful and unappreciative for what you do. And you're going to call that 
love. Listen, Jesus, I don't ask a cross. I don't ask a crown of thorns. All I ask is that you bend your weary bones and just worship me. And all of this, all the authority, all the splendor that you're going to get if you go through that suffering pain, I'll just give it to you right now. And this one seems like perhaps the most obvious one, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Satan is trying to give something Jesus, to Jesus he already have. He's trying to give the kingdom of the world to the one who created the world, the king of the world. Satan's trying to write checks that he can't cash. It seems like this one's almost laughable. I mean, was Jesus really even tempted by this? Well, you wonder until it doesn't seem so funny that you realize that the lie that Satan is selling Jesus is actually something we buy all the time. Call this the fake news temptation. It is a false promise. It is fake news, not good news, that is attached to things that sound oh so desirable, oh so good, but oh so not what God commands. Does it really say that? Oh, you can be like God. All, all you have to do is eat this fruit. Oh, no, I'm sorry, fake news. Like, you're going to die now. Hey, Christian, did God really say that sex is meant for marriage and marriage only? No, God didn't say that. In fact, I promise you, if, if you really love someone, well, then it's fine. It's fake news. Hey, Christian, is God's word really serious when it talks about the tongue, the mouth being meant only for praise, only to build one another up? No, I promise you that God understands if the person deserves it or the situation necessitates it, oh, he'll understand if you say what you want. It's fake news. It's not true. And essentially, isn't this what all of Satan's temptations are? They're lies. They're things that are not true. They're fake news that, that dismisses the good news. And so Jesus looks to Satan and he says, no, 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 put God first. Worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. Again, Jesus fact checks the fake and he says, Satan, you're lying. But Satan's not out of lies yet. He's got one more. He says to the devil, he goes, or devil says to Jesus, look, it seems like you're going to live by the word of God. It seems like you're also going to die by the word of God. Let me ask you this, is it really worth it? Is God really worth trusting? Well, how about this, Jesus? How about you just throw yourself off the temple here and we'll see if God's worth your trust. We'll see if he sends his angels to save you. And what Satan is doing, well, he is tempting Jesus to look to God for things that God did not promise. He's tempting Jesus to turn to God and expect things for which God did not say he was going to give him. And we call this the ATM temptation. Always twisting it for me, always twisting God's promises, his words for me to suit me and what I want. And this temptation was especially a dangerous temptation for Christians, for people like you and me who go to church who know what God's word says. 
God's word has some awesome promises. God's word says, surely I will be with you always. So we twist it. We say, hey, you're with me always? Well, that means I can be with Jesus here in bed. You're with me always? Well, that means that I can worship and pray Jesus while I'm walking the dog. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be with other people. Surely he's with me always. And for those of us who do go to church, we go, well, God says, seek first my kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be given to me as well. And so on Monday I go, well, I went to church. Why isn't God giving me that revenge against, well, my enemies? Wednesday, we go, well, I went to church. Why isn't God giving me success at work, giving me the raise that I wanted, that I deserve? God, I did my part now. You do yours. We go, hey, God, I studied for that exam. Why, why aren't you coming through? Why aren't you giving me the grade that I deserve? We twist God's promises for us, to suit us, to bless us. And we get confused how grace works. We get confused, Thomas, that he is going to send his angels to guard you in all your ways. But he never promised he's going to send his angels when we do stupid things, when we have bad attitudes and we jump off of high buildings. He never promised that. And for the final time, he looks at Satan and he says, you lie. How many of you remember these commercials? Take a look. You're reaching deep inside you Things you've never known It's been tough, rough going but you alone. We do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Think all that you can hey, First Sergeant. Good morning. Find your future in the army. Are they too good to show just one? One more. Could I tap some of your computer expertise, son? So you finally gave in. Yeah, for starters, how does the disk fit into the disk drive? Okay, the Army can train you to program, operate, or fix computers. What does the printer interface do? It lets the computer talk to the printer. They talk to each other. What do they say? And then there's a telephone modem hookup. And the computer training you get is yours forever. Be all that you can be. Like you're not going to be the only computer expert in the family. Get an edge on life. Be all that you can be. How many of you remember that Army recruitment uh, motto? Yeah, it's not only got a catchy tune to it, but a pretty inspiring message, right? I'm not sure those commercials exactly, but I remember being a, a little boy growing up in Florida, seeing those commercials. Be all that you can be. I remember going to Mr. McCullough's Phi Ed class in second grade and seeing the poster right by his door that said, Be all that you can be. It's a pretty inspiring message, right? And then you think about why these temptations, why they're in Scripture, why Jesus had to be tempted, right? And you do. You humble yourself enough and you're honest with yourself enough to, to zoom in, to walk with Jesus, to go into the wilderness and, and watch him be tempted. And it kind of hits you. I'm not all that I can be. In fact, I, I can't be all that I can be. 
And I don't know, maybe you're like me, but you wonder, why can I not stop doing this sin? Why can't I get rid of my doubts? Why can't I get rid of my fears? I can't want to stop sinning, and, and I don't want to stop sinning, and why can't I even just resist some temptations once in a while? Be all that you can be. I, I can't, even if I try. How many of you remember, um, well, what the Army recruitment motto is right now? Anybody? That, that was an old one, but right now, it's Army Strong. Seems to be a pretty good one. Um, has some legs to it. It's lasted about 12 years. But what was the one that came before that? I thought I heard it over here. An Army of One. An Army of One. That one didn't last as long as these other ones. In fact, it lasted only a few years. And, and it seems to be because while the army thought it might help reach out to some people in society who are more individualistic, well, the reality is an army of one probably doesn't capture some of the core values of the army, like teamwork, like working together, right? An army of one. And, and it makes sense, right? Does, does an army ever constitute just one person? just one soldier? Well, no, unless, of course, that soldier is a champion. Not like the way we use the word champion today, like the guys who won the softball tournament last weekend, but like a real champion, an elite singular fighting soldier that would go out when two armies met, uh, the champion would go out and it would stand before the armies and they would face off against one another. They would face off as sometimes a prelude or sometimes in place of the actual battle. And they would fight for their brothers. They would fight for their people, for glory. This was the king's champions. It was David and Goliath. It was Hector and Achilles. It was people who would fight for others for glory. Why was the temptation of Jesus in scripture? We're beginning to see it's the necessity that I have that I need a champion in my life. It's the perplexity of the, of the scandalous, the gracious plot of God who sent his son with a love so, so intense that he came and he fought for me. Why are the temptations of Jesus in scripture? It was for people like you and me who want to be more than we are, who want to be all that we can be, but try and try again, we fall flat on our face. It's for people who want to stop sinning, who want to stand up to temptation, but know that they can't. The temptations of Jesus are in the Bible so that Satan and I stand and we look out over the wilderness of our life and we see Satan standing before us. We also sense the strong arm of our God and our champion on our shoulder who says, I fight this one for you. I am your champion and I am going forth in battle for you. I am going to not just lead you into battle, but I am going to fight for you. And that, that is what this is all about. That our plot to sin has been conquered by God's plot to save because he sent Christ to be our savior, to be our champion for us, to not just save us from the eternal torment on the cross, but also save us from the temporal temptations 
that we face in the wilderness of our life. That's what the temptation of Jesus is all about. A plot of God to save. And before we leave, did you catch how Jesus fought these battles? Did you catch what he used? Jesus didn't use his prayers. He didn't use his willpower. No, so often Christians think that they're going to stand up for temptations. They're going to charge forward uh, because they have, they have a good one, with, a good relationship with their God and they're going to pray to him because the Holy Spirit is, uh, is changing their, their willpower. But no, not even Jesus looked to something that was inside of him. In fact, he looked to something that wasn't his own. Even our Savior used the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That was the choice of weapon for our champion Jesus, the very words of God to defeat the devil. And Christian friends, that is the same sword that you swing this Lenten season and every day of your life. As you go forward, you swing that sword. How? By simply resting in the hands of the one who made the sword, our very good God. By resting in the promise that that though the devil, all this world should still, he's just, scowl fierce as he will, he can harm us none. He's judged, the deed, it's done. How do you swing the sword of the spirit? You simply rest in the promise that because our champion has come, the victory has been won. Lent isn't about anything that you have to do. It's about something that has already been done for you. With might of ours cannot be done. Soon were our loss affected. But for us fights the valiant one who God himself elected. You ask who is this? Jesus Christ it is. And there's no other God. He holds the field forever. Amen.